All right, today we're going to start with the 91st Psalm. And uh, this is kind of a wonderful psalm. Uh, it's called the Warrior Psalm. And in 1991, when the Iraq War started, um, this was quoted quite often. And so it's kind of uh, ironic how the, uh, the year and the uh, psalm happened to come into ascendancy at the same time. But, uh, and I don't think that was uh, just by accident, but the psalms seem to have a pattern, uh, the number of the psalms based on the year from Israel's reestablishment as a nation. Kind of interesting stuff. But uh, here we go with the 91st Psalm. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him I will trust. Surely He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers and under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler you shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwellings. For he shall give his angels charge over you, to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent under you shall trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high, because he has known my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Oh, glorious Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for allowing us to meet here again on this beach. And uh, although the future is uncertain as to what's going to happen here, we do have a nice spot to meet today. And uh, we thank you for the blessings of the past week, and we look forward to your open hand of grace in the week to come. And uh, today we'd like to say a special prayer for the families that are in Connecticut who have lost their children through uh, uh, just evil, which prevails upon the world. And this is nothing new. It happened when you came the first time in Bethlehem. How many children were slaughtered at that time? And throughout history, this has happened. But it doesn't take away the pain of the people that are suffering. And so we do pray for them. And I pray for each person here that's here today that uh, is suffering through medical problems or through financial problems or, or personal family problems or whatever other problems are among us. I would ask that you would just look into our hearts and uh, search us out and uh, find out uh, that which afflicts us and turn it out for your good and for your glory so that we can turn around and have the ability to praise you without these hindrances. And we just love you and we praise you and we commit this uh, next uh, hour or so to you and may it be glorifying to you. And these things we say in the exalted name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, here we have uh, just, a, just a few announcements today. I'll do this first thing as how I've said it in the past, and I think everybody here has been baptized. But if you've never been scripturally baptized, which means you've called on the name of Jesus as Lord, after that point you want to be uh, baptized, just as a picture of what he has done for you. You're buried in the water, uh, buried with him in the grave by going under the water, and raised to newness of life by the power of the uh, Holy Spirit. Actually, one person I know wants to do that. But other than that, I think everybody here has probably done that. If not... Anytime you want to be baptized, I will take you out there and dunk you in the water. Um, uh, Paul and Elaine Stoll, 
they're leaving very soon from Japan. They may have left already, but I haven't heard from them this week. So I would just ask that we continue to pray another week or so for them before they do leave Japan. Or if they have, then that means they're in China on their way back here. And so uh, they've served uh, the Lord well in the past year and uh, they've brought some people to Christ and they've really had an active ministry teaching people from all over the world that come to Japan for studies and things. And uh, so I just would ask that you continue to pray for them until we see their lovely faces in Sarasota. And um, uh, I'm not going to print any more Church on the Beach flyers. I might have said this last week, but there's no point until we know what we're going to be doing. And so um, uh, I'm going to put them out because, you know, why hand them out and have us not be here all of a sudden? So um, uh, we just don't know. They've cut down four or five more trees and uh, the trees are standing, but all the branches are gone and they'll all be gone soon. And I actually heard somebody talking about this becoming a parking lot where they can put boats for the boat ramp over here. And uh, this is the typical thought of Sarasota County is that um, three days a year, that parking lot over there is full, literally. There's never a time I don't come here and I can't find parking. But, uh, you know, Fourth of July and Labor Day and Memorial Day, it's full. And the rest of the year, people suffer without what's beautiful. But that's the way of the world. And uh, so I would like to tell you, that um, I am looking at a building in Gulfgate. It's in the Gulfgate area, but it's in a commercial area. And um, uh, I may go ahead and just see if we can somehow get the money together to buy that where we can meet there. And I would hope, and this is just up to all of you, because I know some of you really like to come out to the beach, but it's become unrealistic that um, you would, you know, hopefully want to continue meeting uh, at this place or wherever we end up and that we could actually build a little church and uh, have people come because for every person that does like to be here, there's 10 more that come and don't want to be here. And, you know, there's mosquitoes, there's heat, there's cold, there's, you know, noise and every other possible thing that could happen. People coming and interrupting or whatever. So I'm not trying to be a downer. I'm just being realistic. And so I am looking at a place and it would be my heart's desire that you would be willing to meet at that location. And, uh, you know, if so, I'll announce it and uh, maybe coming soon to a theater near you. But... Um, uh, I think that's probably all the announcements I have. Um, I, maybe I'll say one more thing about the thing in uh, Connecticut is that um, this is the way of the world. People die because of wickedness. It happened on 9-11. It happened throughout, uh, you know, Pearl Harbor. A lot of people died there. And uh, uh, this is how things get established. And um, I, this week I upset a bunch of people on Facebook because I equated this with the people that were we're saying how tragic it was. Some of them are pro-abortion. And my logic was that since Obama was reelected on November 6, which people made a voluntary choice to vote for him and his agenda, 140,000 children have been aborted. And I said, I know that these 20 children that were killed is a tragedy, but I, I cannot see how somebody could say how terrible it is and yet turn a blind eye to the 140,000 children that were aborted. And I was really barbecued, especially by the left or Christians that do not read their Bible. I know they don't, and uh, uh, they just are you know, Christian in name, and they love the Lord, and there's nothing wrong with that. But as you read the Bible, you will see that these things, are, are, they, they do balance out in our minds morally, eventually, where we come to the point to where we realize that we have to make strong moral decisions. And... I, I am certain of this, and I don't want to get too political today, but I am certain that the shootings of this past week came about because of a degrading moral society. Regardless of the individual who is crazy anyway, it, it, this is just the way of 
our nation going because we no longer hold life and value. And it goes the opposite direction as well. Not only for abortion, but not executing capital crimes. And people rail against that, and yet they are pro-abortion. It makes no sense. But the people that have committed a capital crime have attacked one of God's image bearers. And that person's life is now forfeit. But we don't do that. And I'm, I'm just all I'm trying to do today is to get you to think these issues through so that when somebody comes to you, you can have something to tell them and to reason through with them. And it's not something most people want to reason about. But, you know, children in the womb are God's children, every one of them. And so we need to stand up for that issue. And I will never waffle on that. And I will never try to diminish what happens every day in America because of that and around the world, not just America. Okay, enough of that. What I'll do is I get right into uh, Romans chapter 9, uh, verse 14 today, and we'll do a real quick New Testament reading. I'll probably get a little long-winded in the sermon, so I don't want to talk too much, but I do want to finish Romans 9. Um, And just so you know, if anybody doesn't know this, I do a daily devotional. I started with Romans 1, 1 many years ago, and I went all the way one verse at a time to Revelation 22, 21, and that will be published in the, within the next five days. And after that, I am starting again with Romans 1.1. And if anybody wants to start that and you don't receive that, you know, just send me an email or you can go right on Facebook and I post them there as well. And it will be a detailed analysis of Romans. It will take 433 days to complete because that's how many verses are in that book. And I assure you, you will learn a great deal because I'll be learning as I do these. I, you know, I started that once before and I know so much more than I did then. And I will know so much more afterward. And you never stop learning the immense complexity of God's word. So if you want to join in there, just keep that in mind. I do post them on Facebook and I do send them out by email. There's a difference. By email, I send a nice picture that matches the verse. And by Facebook, you know, you have the access and convenience of of reading at any time during the day and not cluttering up your inbox and all that. So either way, but... Make that uh, aware to people. And um, here we go with Romans 9.14. It says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? And this was going back and speaking about Jacob and Esau, who we're going to see in another couple chapters, their life is going to be described in detail. And it is choice information. I really hope you like the sermon on Jacob and Esau. But, you know, God says that he, uh, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And that came about before they were ever born. And this is God's uh, doctrine of uh, predestination and election. And uh, that was his question. Is God unrighteous because of this? And verse 15 says, um, oh, he, he continues in verse 14. He says, certainly not. Of course God isn't unrighteous. And then he goes to quote Moses. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He's the creator. We are the creation. And as long as we get those two boxes right, then we have no reason to rail against God and say he is unrighteous or he is uncompassionate or he is whatever. It is his choice. And he's going to use, I think, in this chapter, yeah, um, uh, you know, you make a, a, you're make you a potter and you make a, a jar out of clay, which is what we are. We're made out of clay. Uh, and he says if the potter doesn't like it, he just remolds it however he wants. And if he wants, he can make a, a, a clay jar for an ignoble use, like, you know, carrying a you know, something gross, or you could make it for a noble use and put it in your house and have pretty flowers in it. That's his choice. And it's his choice with us. We do what we want with the clay. He does what he wants with the clay. And we have no right to rail against God. Um, And this goes right to some of the things I saw on Facebook this week about what happened. People denying there's a God and they're saying there's evil in the world, but they deny there's a good God because of uh, what happened. And that's completely the opposite thinking. 
when you understand free will, if you were here during the early sermons on free will, you can totally unpackage that and realize that God is completely righteous and he is completely faithful and he is completely able to overcome all of the evil in the world. Anyway, um, so we'll go on um, verse 16. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you that my name may be declared in the earth. God raised up Pharaoh for a specific purpose, was to exalt and glorify his name in all the earth. All right, therefore he has mercy on whom he wills and on whom he wills he hardens. And there's a big dispute. Does God actively harden people's hearts to turn against him? And we're going to talk about that in the predestination sermons. And it's very interesting. I'll give you a very simple example so you can comprehend it. But um, he says um, uh, he hardens who he hardens. Does he actively do it or does he passively do it? In other words, somebody rejects God. And when they reject God, then God passively hardens them. By, he rejects them once. He rejects them twice. He rejects them three times. And pretty soon, there's just hardness of heart. And God allows that to happen. Some people say he actively hardens hearts. Some people say he passively hardens hearts. And that's something, as I said, we'll get into later, just so you kind of get an idea of that. Um, Then he says, verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? It's God's will that somebody is hardened or God's will that they come to Jesus Christ. And they say, well, how can he... How, how can you find fault in us then? If he's the one that did this, how can you find fault in that? And he says, but indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? God gave us life. He gave us breath. He gave us every opportunity to enjoy our existence. We, we, we don't deserve any more than that. In fact, we didn't even deserve to be born. And yet he created us. And whether we're saved or not, we get to eat food, we get to love each other, we get all the wonderful things that God gives us. That's what he's saying here. He goes on, verse 21, the the point I made earlier, does not the potter have the power over the clay from the same lump lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Um, What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? He prepares something for destruction and how did he say that he says um he wants to show his wrath and make his power known he endured with much long suffering the vessels that he created for destruction in other words god makes all of these wicked people in the world in order to show how long suffering is to the people that would be righteous okay and we see that right now just think of a group of people that you think is hugely wicked and you say why doesn't god just wipe them out right now why doesn't he do it because he's showing his long suffering and his mercy all right And we're just touching on these things, but, you know, I just want you to kind of get a feel for what Paul is telling us. Verse 23, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. These are set for destruction, and yet he's very merciful and long-suffering with them. How much more merciful is he to the ones that have been reserved for glory and for salvation? Okay, and then he says, even us whom he called, not out of, of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. There are people from all over the world that are called to salvation through Jesus Christ. I can't think of a, a country that I've been where I don't know at least some Christians popping up and, you know, going out and proclaiming Jesus. In verse 25, as he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. Anybody here that's not a Jew? 
That's who he's speaking to right now. And her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not people, my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. And if you've called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the Bible says that you've been adopted as a child of God. That's us, okay? Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of the, uh, Israel be as the sand of the sea, and it was, if you go back to the time of Solomon, it says they were like the sand of the sea. It says the remnant shall be saved. And God has always promised to save a remnant of his people Israel. Out of all the 12 tribes of Israel, there will be saved people. Always. He has promised to that, that to them, but the majority of Israel just follows the way of wickedness and off they go into destruction. What they are is a microcosm of the world at large. You look at Israel, they are a microcosm of everything that's going on around us. All right. Um, then he says, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. He's quoting Isaiah still there. And then in verse 29, he says, and as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Well, the whole point of that is that Sodom and Gomorrah were utterly destroyed. Nobody from those cities was saved. Only Lot who lived there, who wasn't of that group of people, and his two daughters and his wife who ended up turning around and dying. But those three people got out of there alive. He says, unless the Lord had uh, uh, left us a seed, we would become like them. God preserved that seed of Israel, and he's doing it to this day. You go to Israel today, and they're almost all secular. The majority of that society, they got Buddhas in their house and they, you know, they go to pubs at night and they have rave parties and they, they don't think about God at all. They're just like anybody else in America or anywhere else. But there is a remnant in Israel that is called on Jesus. They're Messianic Jews and they're growing in number now because the Lord is coming soon. And so he is going to return to these people who are faithful. Verse 30, what shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, anybody here pursue righteousness before God called you? No, you're out getting drunk and partying and having a great time, just like Gentiles around the world always have. Those who didn't pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. In other words, and I've said this a million times, you are saved by faith. By, you are saved by grace through faith or by faith through, by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's faith that saves you and God gives us that faith to believe in Jesus Christ. We were unrighteous and now we're righteous simply because we believe. That's it. That's all that he asks for out of us. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, remember the law that's supposed to bring in righteousness, had not attained the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, the works of the law for the stumbling, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. In other words, they thought the law was an end in itself. If I do these deeds of the law, then I'm right before God. And they could never do the deeds of the law. We already have heard that. And so what happened is they have no faith. They just are doing deeds to please God. When the law had the day of atonement, which was solely a day of faith. Either you believe that God is forgiving you through the day of atonement or you don't. And if you don't, then you're not forgiven of anything. And so the law itself is of faith, but they're pursuing it as of works. Okay, and then he goes on, last verse. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And that stumbling stone is Jesus Christ. Because here you got this massive law and you got this simple little thing called Jesus. And I don't mean little in the sense of Jesus. I'm saying it's this little seed of faith that saves you. And they're trying to do all these massive things and they're working up this hill and they trip right over this, this little bump called faith. And that's why it's called a stumbling stone. And it's called a rock of offense. 
because people say, I'm going to earn God's favor. And we hear this in religions everywhere around the world. I am out earning God's favor. And it's a rock of offense to say, everything I've tried to do to please God is of no value to God at all. And so it's a rock of offense. Do you see the logic there? That's what he's saying. Wonderful words from Paul. And uh, we'll get right into the 92nd Psalm. I hope I don't get too long on the sermon because uh, uh, I know that was a little longer than most New Testament readings. But we will read the 92nd Psalm to get us in the mood for a... uh, a sermon and then we'll move on and Friar Tuck if you want to sit there you're not going to be in the way of the camera at all you know I got the camera over here today so whatever's good for you I'll just be comfortable brother um, Psalm 92 a psalm a song for the Sabbath day so this particular psalm would have been read every Saturday in Israel at the temple this is the Sabbath day psalm we don't have a Sabbath day in Christianity a lot of people say I'm observing the Sabbath today they're not The Sabbath is very explicitly detailed in the Old Testament. Nobody does it. Nobody. Even people that say they observe a Sabbath day don't do it the way the law demands. Nobody could do it. Anyway, um, what we have is a day of worship or honor to the Lord. And we're not even required to have that. None of you need to be here on Sunday, and I'm glad you are. But you don't need to be. Paul says some people esteem one day above another, and some people esteem all days alike. He says, let each man be convinced in his own mind. And that's what he wants us to do is just to be convinced that what we are doing is right because of Jesus and not because of our deeds. Okay, a psalm for the Sabbath day. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night on an instrument of 10 strings, on the lute and on the harp with harmonious sound. For you, Lord, have made me glad through your works. I will triumph in the works of your hands. O Lord, how great are your works. Your thoughts are very deep. A senseless man does not know, nor does a fool understand this. When the wicked spring up like grass and when all the workers of iniquity flourish, it is that they may be destroyed forever. Going right back to what he was talking about in uh, Romans, about God making some for, you know, noble purposes and some for ignoble purposes. Anyway, verse 8, But you, Lord, are on high forevermore. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. But my horn you have exalted like a wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil. My eye has also seen my desire on my enemies. My ears hear my desire on the wicked who rise up against me. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. Got lots of beautiful palm trees here. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Hallelujah. Wonderful words. Thank you. Um, All right, uh, we'll get into the uh, reading of the text in just a minute, but before we do, on this day in history, which is today is 16 December, in 1773, does anybody know what happened on this day in 1773? It started a new party in the uh, U.S. a couple years ago. Boston Tea Party. Nearly 350 chests of tea were dumped into Boston Harbor off British ships by colonial patriots disguised as Indians. Today, two things would happen if they do that. The first is that they would be accused of polluting and adding to global warming. And the second is that they would be tried for hate crimes because they dressed as Indians. So that wouldn't happen anymore. But the act was to protest taxation without representation, which is exactly what we have once again in this nation. And not only do we have that, but we have, uh, as one congressman wisely noted, taxation without respiration because they have what's called the death tax. Money that's been taxed twice already is taken away from you when somebody dies. So 
we have not only taxation without representation, but also without respiration. And it also was uh, because of the monopoly the government gave, the British government gave to the East India Company. And once again, we're facing a monopoly in America right now in the healthcare, which is very soon going to be a government monopoly instead of a private one. So we're going back to exactly what we protested against. Um, 1944, during World War II, the Battle of the Bulge began in Belgium. And this was the first major counteroffensive in the war. Uh, the Germans were on the offense continuously until America came and, you know, Normandy and all this. And we pushed them back and pushed them back. And this was the big counteroffensive. And uh, one of the generals, uh, I don't remember, Third Army or something, was uh, completely hemmed in at this place, the Battle of the Bulge. And they, uh, the Germans asked him to surrender. And he sent them a one-word statement. She obviously remembers. Go ahead and say, what did he say? Nuts. Nuts. That's right. He said, it ain't going to happen. Patton came and delivered them. And uh, in the end, uh, the war was victorious. And we're not speaking German now. We're speaking English. Um, 1950, U.S. President Truman proclaimed a national state of emergency in order to fight communist imperialism. And you know where I'm going with this. In the 1950s, about the same time, the uh, communists uh, wrote a manifesto of how to usurp America from within. Every single tenet that is in that manifesto, and you can read it right online, you can buy the book anywhere, uh, every single tenet is being worked through, and I, I am serious when I say this, the Democrat Party of the United States. And that's not to say that all Democrats are communists. I'm not saying that at all. But people that don't pay attention do not realize what this agenda is. And this was written at the same time he was working on an external offensive, we have an internal one. And those goals are being led explicitly by our current president. I just want you to know that if you don't agree with that, I, I can't help you. Just check it out for yourself and don't trust me. Like I say, I'm not trying to get political. It's just reality. This is the real reality of the situation. In 1951, NBC TV debuted Dragnet. Oh, wonderful. Thanks, Jack Webb, if you remember, Sergeant Friday. And uh, that was on the Chesterfield sound off time. And uh, it became official. It actually aired for the first time on January 3rd of 1952. And then here's something that I put in, you know, me in sports, but uh, I put this in because it points to every one of us here. If we are a Christian, the Miami Dolphins became the first NFL team to go unbeaten and untied in a 14 game regular season. The Dolphins went on to defeat the Washington Redskins in Super Bowl seven. They were imperfect people that performed perfectly. It was perfection, okay? If you understand what I'm saying here, every one of us here, unless you feel more of yourself than you should, every one of us here is a sinner. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, and we have all done bad things in our life. We've probably done bad things since we arrived at church on the beach today, just in our thoughts. This is our human nature. I know I have. I sit here and I think bad things all the time about people I'm talking about right here, wishing I wouldn't think these things, but I do. So the fact is that God is taking people out of this world and he is creating a perfect bride out of imperfect people. And that's exactly what happened here with um, the uh, Miami Dolphins. The Miami Dolphins were just a bunch of guys that, you know, there were fumbles, there were drop passes, there were, you know, whatever happened. And yet they performed perfectly. It's, it's astonishing to think of how that happens, but it's a microcosm of what we are going to become in the presence of the Lord. And we're going to see the final part of that in Genesis 24 being pictured where Rebecca becomes the wife of Isaac. And I, I, I just was astonished to see that happened on today because it fits so perfectly with what we're going to talk about. And uh, then a couple of uh, birthdays. We had uh, Ludwig von Beethoven was born on this day in 1770. 
and a guy named Arthur C. Clarke, who wrote uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and he also invented the communication satellite. He was born in 1917. So there you go, a little fun from uh, history here. And uh, before we get actually into the sermon, we're going to read the text for today, which is Genesis 24, and it's verses 53 through 67. And the sermon today is entitled, The Son Receives His Bride. All right, verse uh, 53. Then the servant brought out jewelry of silver, jewelry of gold and clothing, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night. Then they arose in the morning, and he said, Send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least ten. After that she may go. And he said to them, Do not hinder me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away so that I may go to my master. So they said, We will call the young woman and ask her personally. Then they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Then Rebekah and her maids arose, and they, took, uh, they rode on camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now Isaac came from the way of Beer Lahai Roi, for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. And he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. For she had said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Wonderful words, and we'll look at them right now. Uh, before we do, there, there is one thing I was thinking about before you all arrived here, is that all these tables were moved out of the way from here. They were cutting down the trees, and uh, a couple of them had stuff all over them. And um, uh, Anyway, I don't know from week to week if we're even going to have these tables here. So if you come, it may be good for you to bring a chair. And that way, if we don't have tables, at least we can set up chairs here. And I'll try to remember to bring some next week as well. I apologize I didn't bring any today. But uh, if it wasn't for Renee here, she just, I mean, picked up the tables with me and moved them over. So uh, she's, she's got some great muscles. Thank you for your help, Renee. Anyway, um, uh, today, as I said, we're finishing out chapter 24 of uh, Genesis. It's taken us, this is our fourth of uh, four sermons to do this. And uh, it's been a wonderful, at least to me, it's been a wonderful adventure of what God is doing in and through the church. Uh, the length of the chapter and the detail that is in this chapter is meant to show us of the importance of this account in later redemptive history. And God isn't, he's not just picking fun or beautiful stories to show us what the lives of people were like thousands of years ago. It's not at all what he's doing. He's putting these things in here so that we can think them through and see how he is going to act in history for the benefit of the people he's calling out of the world. That's why these stories are here. And I had missed all of the significance until I started these sermons. So don't ever feel bad like, oh, gee, I missed that. So did I. If I didn't sit down line by line and pray through every single verse, I wouldn't know these things either. So I want you to understand, because uh, I think mom's not here today, but she told me last week, she says, you know, I, I never thought of that. I don't even know why I read the Bible, because I never thought of that. And I, I told her, mom, I never thought of these things either, and I've read it 50 times. So 
there you go. But what God is doing is he is selecting these stories to show us what he is going to do later in and through his son, Jesus Christ, for the people of the world. In the process of redeeming a bride for the world and from the power of the devil, he is doing this to, to gain this beautiful bride for his son, Jesus. That's what I'm trying to say there. And if we miss the significance of these stories, then our understanding of his love for us and how he is going to accomplish his plans will be, be it'll become obscured. Our text verse for today comes from Isaiah chapter 62. It's the fifth verse. For as a young man marries a woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God is working in and through time. And remember this, God created time. So he's working through this medium which he created to secure for himself and for his son a people who will live in his presence for all eternity. We will be a bride for a bridegroom. The story of the Bible is the story of pure and undefiled love. This love is going to be realized someday when we are presented as Jesus, as a bride adorned in white who is suitable for the king of the universe. And so may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first of three thoughts today is gifts to the bride. Now what we need to do, and I've done this each time, is we need to look back at who these actors are and who they represent. Abraham is a picture of God the Father and he's not gonna be included in today's particular sermon. Isaac is a picture of God the Son, Jesus, and the servant is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Rebecca then is a picture of the bride of Christ, okay, the people of God. Understanding these pictures under, helps us to understand why God has placed this story in the Bible in the first place and to see what he is doing in the world as he prepares for eternity with this special group of people who have been called out of the world that we live in now. And I'll give you an example or a word from the New Testament where we use this term, it's ecclesia. A lot of people will translate that as church. It means to be called out. And that is what we are. We are called out of the people of the world to be unique and peculiar for God. And that's what he's doing. And eventually we will be taken out of here and in his presence. But we're not there yet. Verse 53, then the servant brought out jewelry of silver, jewelry of gold and clothing and gave them to Rebekah. Last week we saw that the servant, after he explained his mission, he arrived in his journey, he sat down, he explained his mission, and all that he had done in fulfilling this mission, the family of Rebekah allowed to give her to be Isaac's wife. And I want you to remember that because I'm going to bring up a point here in, a, 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 I don't know, about eight or nine verses, which I, I, I don't want you to forget that they have already agreed to give Rebecca as the wife, okay? It's not something that's gonna come up again. And just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. This agreement has been made, and so now the servant brings out these gifts for the bride. The Hebrew term, which is used here to describe jewelry, actually means instruments or vessels. They may have been things that she would wear, they may have been things that she actually would use, but he adorns her with these precious things. This is a picture, as I've already said in previous sermons, of the gifts which the Spirit gives to God or the spirit of God gives to God's people, all right, the bride of Christ. This is noted in Ephesians chapter four, verse seven. Paul writes these words. He says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. 
Throughout the New Testament, the gifts of the Spirit are seen in wisdom, insight, ability, plus all of the other gifts that I mentioned in a previous sermon. The vessels and the instruments of the Christian faith are meant to adorn us as the bride of Christ in anticipation of the day when he comes for us. But there is more. It says that he also gave her clothing. Okay, and this is an important concept. It's noted several times throughout the Bible, but particularly in the New Testament, and even by Jesus' own words, as well as the words of the apostle. In the book of Revelation, it says this, uh, where these uh, particular garments are going to come from. It says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Okay? In other words, it is by calling on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior that we are given the garments of righteousness. And that's what's being prefigured by him giving her clothing as well as these gifts. In the exact same chapter, chapter 3 of Revelation, Jesus explains this to us. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Taking that in context, we don't actually purchase these garments. We buy them through faith in Jesus Christ. Keep that in mind. Rebecca has been accepted as the bridegroom and he is yet unseen, and we have been accepted by God, and we have been betrothed to Jesus Christ. This is a bride ready to meet her bridegroom, and it's going to happen some wonderful day in the future. God leaves this choice up to each one of us, though, and this is important because you have family members that may not know Jesus personally, and he expects us to get out and tell them about that, all right? He leaves the choice up to individuals. God doesn't just, you know, arbitrarily pick things and say, well, I'm going to save you and not save you. And as I said earlier, when we were looking in the Romans passage, some people will say God actually does that. He says, I'm not going to save you, and I am going to save you. And that's the hardening of the heart. Is it active or is it passive? And that's what I talked about. But in the end, we can remain in the clothing that we are given at birth, which is sin-stained, or we can put on the garments of righteousness, which comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And we can be in that always ready state to meet him. Solomon describes this state, believe it or not, in the Old Testament. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he says these words, Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white. All right, so he's saying God has accepted your works. The works are faith. And that's what Solomon is speaking of. And we're adorned in garments of white. Verse 53 continues. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. A dowry is now paid to this family. Laban and the mother are both given precious gifts. But the term used here in Hebrew is the word migdanot. In Deuteronomy, this is specifically describing exquisite fruits and other delicacies. And in the book of the Song of Solomon, it indicates precious plants and flowers. In general, a migdanot can mean any type of gift, but they are a kind which is inferior to the gifts that were given to Rebecca. Okay? What this then is signifying, and I don't want you to miss this, is that God blesses people in the world through the people of God indirectly. And this has been noted throughout the ages as clear as crystal. The people of the world have benefited amazingly from Jewish and Christian scientists, scholars, theologians, writers, etc. Any country which has actively persecuted Jews or Christians has only cut itself off from the blessings of God. And we see that happening in the world right now. They receive these benefits indirectly through the blessings that are given to us. 
you know what? That's just the way of the world. They see it. And I was talking to somebody about this yesterday. The uh, the nuns, for example, in the Gaza Strip, you know, they're over there trying to help these people and they turn around and shoot them. It's the dog biting the hand that feeds it. And this goes on all over the world all the time. The blessings of God come through the Jews and the Christians and the world rejects them. Verse 54, and he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night. Only after seeking the bride and getting the agreement, he, does he pay the dowry? And then after that, he sits down to eat and drink and rest. The picture is no less understandable in the work of the Holy Spirit, who is working continuously through the word and through the church to bring the people of the world the message of Jesus Christ. But I got to tell you what, there is a time when this is going to end. It's called the rapture of the church. That's when this is going to end. But before I discuss the rapture of the church, I'd like to tell you that it says that he and the men who were with him ate and drank. And what that means is that it is telling us that the Holy Spirit is not the only one that is working for God's people. It is angels as well. And angels are real and they actively help God's people. That's explained in the book of Hebrews in particular. But I'd like you to understand that, that the Holy Spirit is fully God, but angels are not. And we are not to worship angels. Okay, I want you to make that distinction. The Holy Spirit has a function and a role within the Godhead, and angels do not. They are messengers of God, and they are here on behalf of God's people. Anyway, verse 54 continues. Um, uh, where am I? Then they arose in the morning, and he said, send me away to my master. At some point, as I said, the work of God and his spirit is going to be complete. And it will be the time for God's presence to be removed from the world. That day is coming and the moment is going to be so sudden that we're not even going to know it occurred. We're going to be in the presence of the Lord that quickly and the world is not even going to know we're gone. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 explains this. It says here, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. In other words, God is going to take the people of the world out at the rapture, which I'm going to talk about a little more in the verses ahead. But after that happens, the Antichrist is going to be revealed. And there's going to be seven years on this earth of hell on earth. All right. And after that, Jesus Christ is going to return with his bride, with the church, to destroy the forces of the Antichrist and the forces of wickedness on the world, and he is going to set up a thousand-year reign of Christ. This is all being prefigured right here in this beautiful passage about Rebecca. It's astonishing. Verse 55, but her brother and her mother said, yet let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least 10. After that, she, she may go. I'm really, my mouth is just dry today. I don't know why, and I'm sorry. I'm just fumbling all over my words. Anyway, both Laban and the mother respond here. Laban probably because he wanted to have a chance to get more from the deal. You remember the sermon last week how Laban was profiting off of his sister. And that's probably why he doesn't want Rebecca to leave. He can get more stuff before they depart. But the mother is probably wanting her. No, I'll be fine. The mother is probably just going to miss Rebecca. And so that's why they want her to stay a little bit longer. Once again, though, we see a picture of the people of the world after the rapture. Some of the people of the world are going to miss what Christianity has done for the world. And some of the people of the world are going to miss the Christians when they depart. Just as the family wants Rebecca to stay for a few days, the people who dithered, 
who would not make a commitment to Jesus Christ are going to be stuck here. What is taken for granted right now is going to seem more precious than anything else. And so if you, and I, you know, I'm talking to the same people every week and, you know, sometimes we get new people here, but if you in your heart have not yet accepted Jesus Christ and you come here and you're acting like a Christian, but you've never made that commitment, these are put in here to show us the consequences of our actions. Rebecca is going to leave this home and we really are going to leave the world. And if you haven't in your heart called on Jesus Christ as Lord, you're gonna be left behind. And God is showing us these things. So I'm speaking to you that I know you personally and believe that you're saved, but only you can make that final commitment in your heart. All right? The term here though, uh, that's used for uh, her, them wanting her to stay is yamim a osor, which is days or 10. And it's a very difficult phrase to interpret. As a matter of fact, it doesn't really have any specific meaning. And that tells us that what they're asking is they're asking for an indeterminate amount of time for her to stay. Yamim a osor, I'm sorry, days or 10. They're just saying, well, let her stick around for a while. And this is, as I explained last week, the number 10 just simply indicates a fullness of time, an indeterminate duration of time. They want Rebecca to stay until they're ready to let her go. Not as the servant wishes, but as they wish. Verse 56, and he said to them, do not hinder me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. The servant is completely uninterested in their request. The bride was granted, the dowry was paid, and the task is complete with the exception of him taking her and actually delivering her to Isaac. He asks that nothing will hinder what has been so divinely orchestrated. And once again, I am absolutely sure that this is what's gonna happen at the coming of the rapture. The spirit is going to hear the call of many people. Right after the rapture, they're gonna say, I just want one last chance. And he's gonna hear those voices and he's gonna know that they sat on the sidelines and they didn't make a commitment to Jesus Christ and I'm sure his heart is gonna be broken because of it. It's gonna pain him to depart with those people. But God has given every single person a chance to call on Jesus Christ. No wonder that Paul is so adamant when he writes these words from 2 Corinthians 6. It says, we then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. And I wanna give you an example of that so that you can think it through clearly when you're talking to somebody about Jesus. Whenever I witness to people, I use this verse as the last verse before I say I'm done. I say, now is the time of God's favor and today is the day of salvation. And the reason why I do that is so that they understand that there is an imminent choice that has to be made. And then I give them this example. On 9-11, about 3,000 people went into a building and they pushed a button and they went up to have their coffee on the 100 and whatever floor. And not one of those people, not one of them thought, in an hour, I'm gonna be dead or I'm gonna be jumping out of a window or I'm, I'm gonna be uh, burning to death in airplane fumes. And that's what I tell people when I witness to them, that there is an expectation from God that we respond and not dither in this. So please keep that in mind when you talk to other people about Jesus. Anyway, our second thought today is the called out bride. Verse 57. <clears throat> so they said, we will call the young woman and ask her personally. I believe, and this is what I wanted to 
you to understand earlier, the deal has already been made for Rebecca. And they're saying, we, we will call the young woman and ask her personally. And I believe that the, the uh, commentaries that surround this verse, I read lots of commentaries, and almost all of them said the same thing about this verse. And it's very shallow thinking. It says that parents should never arrange for a marriage for their children without the consent of both parties. Okay? That's shallow thinking for a couple reasons. The first is that Rebecca's parents had already consented to having her married and they'd already received all of the gifts. The second, though, reason for this isn't that she is going to marry Isaac, but whether she is going to go now without time to prepare. And the reason why I'm so concerned about this particular issue isn't that I believe that we should have arranged marriages. So make sure you understand that while I'm talking about this issue. I don't think that that's what we need to do in our society. But the custom of arranged marriages goes back to the very first man on earth. God arranged a marriage for Adam, right? And it is these cultures that have arranged marriages, such as Japan and, you know, the, uh, the um, Arab cultures, these cultures are the ones where marriage lasts. I'm not saying that the type of marriage is correct, though, so please understand that. But what it was based on was obedience first. This is, this, it, it, try to get my thoughts here. I know that I'm not really speaking clearly today, but I want you to get my thoughts on this without me erring. When we fall in love in America, it is an emotional love, right? That's what we base our relationships on. And when we do that, we make a fundamental mistake concerning our relationship. And it goes to our children as well. The children in those cultures obeyed their parents. They accepted what was done when they said, well, you're going to marry this man. They said, well, this is correct. Love, in other words, came through the union and through obedience, not the opposite. Today, what we're doing, we're placing this emotional love highest, and it has shown to fail time and time and time again. In the same mentality, it has ended with children who are disobedient to their parents and who dictate to their parents, not the other way around. I'll give you an example because Orion's here today. Someday, because she emotionally loves her child, she may say, oh, well, you know, you can do whatever you want, and I love you, and so I don't want to interfere with your choices. But she's the parent. And because she's the parent, there are certain things that will harm him that she needs to say no to. Do you understand what's going on here? And it's the same thing with a marriage. We do not want to base our marriages first on emotions, but first on a dedication. And as long as we go into a marriage with that purpose first, no matter what, I will be dedicated to this person. And then I will emotionally love them it is more likely to last. And I will give you the best example of all is that lady right over there. Because while I was emotionally loving her and I was just a basket case for 16 years of our marriage, she was steady, she was steadfast, and she was faithful. She was obedient as a wife and it is because of her that we're still married, not me. It took me time to become mature enough to understand that marriage is a commitment. And just because you fall in and out of love time and time again during that relationship does not mean that the marriage has to end. The marriage is to last. And that's what I'm trying to tell you, and I hope that you understand that. It is the Bible's model for marriage. It is of respect. 
and it is of obedience, and it is grounded in unconditional love, not an unknown quantity of love, which afterwards directs love and obedience or respect and obedience. So as we continue to move away from that biblical model in our society, we will continue to suffer, not just in marriages, but in disobedient children and in a society which is falling apart. I hope I got that across clearly because that is a most important issue for us to keep in our minds as we suffer with spouses that sometimes we don't love. We're still to be dedicated to them. All right, that's what I'm getting at. Verse 58, then they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. The question about Isaac isn't even raised. The decision was already made and she knew this. The question is, will you go with this man? In other words, you haven't seen the man that you've been betrothed to. And if you go, you're not going to see us anymore either. Are you willing to go through it in this manner? And her answer is an answer of faith, both in the providence of God and in the promises of a marriage to a man that she has never even seen. This verse is the call of the redeemed and their answer. Is Jesus Lord? Yes, Jesus is Lord. We haven't seen him and we've only known about Jesus Christ by what the Spirit has provided. And that's the Holy Bible and the gospel message. We are called by the Spirit. The offer is given by the Spirit. And we respond in consent to the Spirit. I belong to Jesus and I will go. Verse 59. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And as I was contemplating this verse, it suddenly dawned on me. Do you know how long ago it was that she was first introduced to this guy at the well? It was less than 15 hours. She walks out to the well. It just suddenly dawned on me. This girl walks out to the well with a, a jar on her hand to get water for her family. And within 15 hours, she is leaving her family and she'll never see him again. And she is, by faith, going off to meet a man that she has never met. And I think, my hair's standing up right now when I realize that. It was either this morning or yesterday morning. I thought, my God, is that not a person of faith right there? She'll never have to draw water again for her family, but she'll also never get to eat mom's cooking again. It just, it's simply astonishing. Verse 59. So uh, Rebecca is going, I think I read that. So they sent away Rebecca and her sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. Rebecca is going now on the most exciting journey of her entire life. She's off to meet this husband that she has never met. But as she goes, some other people depart with her. It says her maids and a nurse. I want you to understand, if you don't understand anything else from what I've talked about today, this is the verse that I want you to keep in heart. This verse's name is Deborah. She's not even named here, and she's only going to be named in a couple chapters. They're going to bury her. She's going to die, uh, and this is many years later. Then her name is given. Other than that, we don't know anything about Rebecca. Although she's just mentioned one time here and one time when she dies, she has a much more important role than you might imagine. Okay, the term used in Hebrew to describe this lady is yanak, which means to suckle. So this lady was the one who raised and breastfed Rebecca. Even though she has her own mother, this is the way they do this in many societies in the world. My grandmother grew up in China and they had nursemaids that did this. Different women would raise children than the parent. Her name means bee. Deborah, it means bee. Okay? And that doesn't tell us very much until we get a fuller picture of what her name means. Her name comes from the word dabar. And the word dabar means word. It's where we get the term the word of God from. 
What God is telling us here, and what I do not want you to miss, is that this is a picture of her being raised on the Bible and the Bible going with her. Do you see this? And this isn't a stretch either. I'm not just making this up. The Bible itself tells us this. Honey, in the Bible, is the only sweetener that's used in the Bible, and it's the only one that existed at that time. And it is what brought the bland to tastiness. It's what brought the mundane to joy. It's what brought the depressed people to life. And this is how the Bible is described throughout the Bible. In the book of Psalms, here in uh, the 19th Psalm, it says, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by your servant is warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. And then in the 119th Psalm, something I read every day of my life, it says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And then in both Ezekiel and in the book of Revelation, the prophets are given a scroll of prophecy, and they're told to eat that scroll. And then it says it will be like honey in your mouth. In other words, Deborah has been raising Rebecca, and she's going along with her in her new life. We are to know God through this revelation of himself, and we are to carry it with us all the days of our life. Until we meet our husband, it's the only way that we can know him. The word is what teaches us, it's what tends to us, and it's what keeps us from going astray. If you are relying on the Holy Spirit alone, without the knowledge of the word of God, then you have faulty faith and you have a faulted theology. I really do feel sorry for people, and you all know this, when they go into church and they think all they need to do is just listen to a sermon and God is going to somehow inject the Holy Spirit into them with a syringe. It's never going to happen. The only way that we are going to know God in his fullness is the gift that he's left us, which is the Holy Bible. So please, if nothing else that you get from this sermon, and this is the same theme I give you week after week, read your Bible. It's the one thing that I would ask of you. Read your Bible. Verse 60. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of ten th- thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. This is the very first blessing that's pronounced upon a woman in the Bible. And it came to pass in its fullness, just as it was pronounced. May you become thousands of ten thousands is a way of saying a number beyond comprehension. And it was literally fulfilled in her two sons, Jacob and Esau, who became Israel and the Edomites. And of course, it is fulfilled literally or spiritually in the church, the spiritual descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. May your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them is the second half of this blessing. This is asking that her descendants would overcome any and all of their enemies completely. And this was fulfilled in the Bible, literally at the time of King David, when David died, Solomon says he had rest from all of his enemies. So it was fulfilled literally in Israel, but it's also fulfilled in Jesus Christ spiritually, where the gates of hell will not prevail over the message of the church. Jesus says it in uh, Matthew 16. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I want you to think about something from this verse. I wasn't sure if I was even going to bring this up today, but I'm going to. Peter is the rock. That's what his name means. And it says here, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The Catholic Church has used this verse to say that Peter was the first pope, and every pope after that is in the apostolic succession of Peter. And they say 
he's saying that Peter the rock is the one on whom the rock is built. And just so you know, that is not correct. The reason why is the name Peter is masculine and on this rock is feminine. It would be like saying my brother over there, he's a nice guy and he goes out to uh, the beauty salon and puts uh, mascara on his face and uh, she goes, in other words, it's convoluted. It doesn't make any sense. The rock that Jesus Christ is building his church on is the proclamation that Peter made in the previous verse. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. In other words, that is the rock that the church is being built on. The proclamation that he is our Lord, our Savior, our Christ, and our Messiah. So in case you ever hear that, don't be confused about that. Just remember that Peter is not the first pope. That's just not correct, all right? Verse 61, then Rebekah and her maids arose and they rode on the camels and followed them. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Up she goes to meet a, uh, to be a bride to a man that she's never met. She is, as I said, a picture of the church, the called out people of God. I told you the term, the ecclesia. She's a virgin and this is exactly how Paul describes us. I used this in the first of these four sermons and I'll read it to you now. For I've betrothed you, meaning the church, to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul is not speaking of literal virginity here, okay? But of our virgin spiritual state in the purity of the gospel. We are never to mix in any heresy of any kind. No works, nothing. It is by faith that we are saved and that's what we proclaim to the world. There's one Jesus and there's one gospel message. God is not confused and we are not to be confused either, okay? In a fuller and more detailed description of our roles and duties, Paul writes these words to his brothers at Ephesus. Husbands, and all the husbands here can listen to what you're supposed to do with your wives. Love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Well, how did Christ love the church? He died for her. That's, that's the kind of love that we are to have for our wives. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he explains it explicitly. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Everything we're seeing in the Bible is pointing to Christ and our relationship with him. Right back to Rebecca. And that brings us to our third thought today, the bride and the bridegroom, or the bridegroom and the bride. Put Jesus first. Verse 62, now Isaac came from the way of Be'er Lahai Ro'i, for he dwelt in the south. Isaac is a picture of the son of God. We've seen that through all four of these sermons. Here we have a picture of where he is right now in the church age. It says that Isaac came from the way of Be'er Lahai Ro'i. The term means the well of the one who lives and sees me. Jesus is alive and he's in the well watching us. He is in his eternal state and he is watching his bride. He's walking among his churches just as the book of Revelation says and he is waiting for the moment when the bride will be ready. The very fact that the Bible explains where Isaac is now tells us that that is the connection that we're to make, that Jesus is living and that he is watching us as he awaits us. Verse 63, and Isaac went out in the field to meditate. He went out to meditate in the field in the evening and he lifted his eyes and looked and there 
the camels were coming, we can only speculate on what Isaac was meditating about. The term here for meditate is lasuach, and it's the only time that it's used in the entire Bible, and so nobody really knows exactly how to translate this word. So the most translations will use the word meditate. But lasuach gives us the, uh, the concept of bending, like bending your mind or bending your body. And you kind of do both when you meditate because you're actually bending, thinking about something. It could be, and this is total speculation by me, that one of the entourage went forward to tell Isaac that the caravan is coming. And so he went out and he went to meditate in the field. And for all I know, he's thinking about what's she going to be like? What is, is she going to be beautiful? You know, does she have dark hair? Does she have almond eyes? Does she have olive skin? He's probably just in anticipation. And I got to tell you what, when I was thinking about this this morning, this is what Jesus is thinking about each one of us. How are they going to be presented before me? And this is our choice. He's waiting for a bride. And although he knows the future, we don't. So each one of us wants to do our very, very best at presenting ourselves before the king, completely spotless, completely pure, and completely holy. And I'll tell you this, you should be the most beautiful part of this wedding ceremony apart from Christ himself, okay? I would hope that you would do that. You would commit in your life from this day forward to making him absolutely the priority in your life. Verse 64, then Rebecca lifted her eyes and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. This is the seventh time now that the term to lift eyes has been used in the Bible. And so far, I've never taken the time to explain it. What it is, is it's an idiom, which means to look up or to look out intently. And normally, when it's used, it doesn't just mean to look physically, but to also look spiritually. Moses was taken up on top of the mountains, and he said, uh, God told him to lift his eyes and look at the land that he would not go into, but the people of Israel would. And he had a spiritual look at what was coming, because, of course, he couldn't see all of Israel from that mountain. And yet it says he saw all of Israel from that mountain. So this is something that's going on inside of us, not just physically, but spiritually. In the previous verse, we saw that Isaac lifted his eyes in anticipation of the arrival of the bride. Now Rebecca's lifts hers in anticipation of seeing her bridegroom for the very first time. This is a picture of when God favors fallen man. Here we are. We're walking around in our lives. We're groping in darkness. We're going from one meaningless thing to another. And all of a sudden, the Lord lifts his eyes and he looks at us. And at that moment, he sees us as he has never seen us before. That moment didn't exist. And all of a sudden, we're pure and we're spotless and we're undefiled in his presence. And at the exact same moment, we have the clarity of vision that didn't exist either. We have in full view the fulfillment of the longing of our heart. Here we are. I said we're going from this meaningless experience to another to another, and you're trying to get it through drugs or alcohol or sex or whatever, and it never satisfies. And all of a sudden, somebody tells you about Jesus Christ, and everything else comes into focus. And that is what this picture right here of Rebecca lifting her eyes and seeing Isaac is. It's the moment that we call on Jesus Christ. And we're never going to have another moment like that in our life. But we were once blind, and now we see we were in darkness, and we've traded it for light. Vanity has now been traded for clarity of purpose. When Isaac, or when Rebecca saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. And the word that is used here for dismounted means that she actually fell off her camel. What she did is she jumped in anticipation. 
And when the call, I've said this before, when the call for Jesus is given, I'm going to be jumping ahead of you because not one of you is going to beat me into the presence of the Lord. I cannot wait. And that's the picture we're getting here. She's so excited when she hears the words that this is going to be her bridegroom, that she falls right off of the camel. They have seen each other and they are just about to touch for the first time. And right now we are united to Christ in a form of sight that does not need physical eyes in order to see him. But my thought is, what is it going to be like when our physical eyes meet with our spiritual eyes and we actually see Jesus Christ for the first time? I, I, I just cannot wait. And that's what we're seeing right now. Verse 65, for she had said to the servant, who is this man walking in the field to meet us? She is the bride for the bridegroom. And in a parallel of the people of God, she loves a man that she's never met. The love is unconditional and it is faithful. As I said, it's not emotional and it is not erotic. Peter describes this type of love in his first epistle. He says here, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Anybody here going through various trials? Guess what? He explains why we go through them. That the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though you now do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with, rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Here we go, Rebecca about to meet Jesus. Here we are being tested with these various trials, about to meet the Lord of creation. Isaac is a picture of Christ. He's never seen his bride, and yet he goes out to receive her. This is coming very, very soon, I hope. And it's detailed in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. The moment is coming. I, I, I tell you what, it is so exciting to see these pictures of the old getting ready to be fulfilled in the new. And literally during our lifetime, I think. Jesus really is coming. Verse 65 continues. The servant said, it is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. This is a very important verse to understand the nature of the Godhead. And you wonder how that could be. But the servant says, it is my master. All right. In other words, because he is Abraham's and Isaac is his son, then he belongs to Isaac. In the Godhead, there is a hierarchy, but there is no subordination. Okay. He belongs to his master. The, the Holy Spirit doesn't literally belong to God the Father or God the Son. He belongs to the Godhead. Throughout the Bible, we're going to see statements which those who are confused about the nature of the Trinity will misuse, even to the point of heresy. And I'll give you one. Jesus said that the Father is greater than I am. But this is not meant in the sense of importance, but of rather of logical order. The Father comes logically before the Son but he's not more important than the son. Abraham, for example, is considered greater than Isaac because he comes logically before Isaac, not because he's more human than Isaac is. In the family, Abraham is greater than the son, okay? The servant carries the message of the father and the son, just as the Holy Spirit carries the message of the father and the son. It's important to know these things and to see them here in these Old Testament pictures because eventually we will come to Jesus Christ actually in the Bible and people will say, well, he's not fully God. That's incorrect. 
He is the Son of the Father. He is the exact image of God. He is in him the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, the Bible says. He represents God the Father completely, absolutely, fully. Okay? Anyway, as soon as she sees Isaac, she covers herself with a veil. And this is the first of only three times that this particular word is going to be used in the whole Bible, and it's only used in the book of Genesis. The word is hasatif. And from the context of those three accounts, there's no doubt that it does mean veil, okay? Sometimes there's words that we don't know, but this one certainly means veil. And what I think, and this is all speculation on my part, what I think this veil is telling us is that between the time of the rapture and the time that we actually have the wedding ceremony with Christ, we will be veiled to Christ. And the reason why is because when we are raptured, we're still sinful human beings. And we need to be judged. The Bible says that we will go to the Bema Seat of Christ. That's detailed in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me read it to you. It says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what is done, whether good or bad. Jesus isn't going to judge his bride after he marries her. He's going to judge her before he marries her. So once we are purged of our old sins and we have our glorified bodies in the state that we're going to be for all of eternity, then the veil will be removed. And that's why I think that verse is in here. Verse 66, And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. A full and detailed account is given by this guy of what he has done from the time he left to the time he comes back. And this is exactly what the Holy Spirit has done for us in the pages of the Holy Bible Jesus, or just as this servant was faithful to tell us about Jesus, okay, the Holy, uh, the Holy Spirit telling us about Jesus, this servant here is faithful to tell of what occurred while he was gone, all right? We have this unmatched treasure in the pages of the Holy Bible, and yet we let it sit gathering dust when it holds all of the precious, precious words of life that each one of us needs. And because of this concept, I want to do something I normally don't do with this sermon, okay? And I'm almost done here. I know it's hot out here, and it's been a really hard sermon for me to give because of the heat on my head. But I want to give you seven things that you can consider in your own life. And you don't need to write them down or anything. If you want, I can email them to you. But based on what this servant has done, what we can do with our own Christian lives, okay? The first is that he did not go without being sent. We go at God's direction and not at our own. Secondly, he went where he was sent. You're going to go to Mesopotamia and you're going to look for a bride. He went exactly there. And we are to go where the Lord wants us to go, not where we want to go. It's detailed in the Bible where we're supposed to go. And I'm not talking about choices of what country or something. I'm talking about go in life. He tells us and we do that. Three, he only did what he was directed and he did nothing else. Remember the, the talk with Abraham and the servant from four sermons ago? He has done exactly what he was supposed to and nothing else. And in the same way, we obey the Bible and we add nothing to it. Fourth, the servant prayed and then he watched for opportunities. Remember him sitting by the well and he says, Lord God, send me somebody. And then we, he watched for the opportunities and we're to do the same thing. We cannot commune with God outside of reading the Bible and prayer. So those are the things we do, and then we look for opportunities based on that prayer and that Bible reading each morning, okay? Then fifth, he took advantage of the opportunity that God opened to him. Now, we need to not only pray for opportunities, but we need to actually take them. And I was thinking, I laughed to myself this morning, I was thinking about this. 
I go get up in the morning and I pray, oh God, send me somebody to speak to about Jesus, right? That's what I pray for. And I'm looking for an opportunity. I'm walking down the road and I'm starting to get late. And somebody's walking this way and he says, you're Charlie Garrett, right? And I say, yes. He says, you're a Christian, right? Yes, I am. He says, can you tell me about Jesus? I'm really busy. And off I go. When that's exactly what I had prayed for in the morning. And this is what that servant is doing. He took advantage of the opportunities that he had prayed for. Okay, six, the servant spoke nothing except what he was directed. And he spoke of the greatness and the riches of his master, not himself. We need to not add to what God has revealed to us from our own heads. And we need to make sure that when we speak of God, we speak of his wisdom, his riches, and his greatness, not our own. And finally, the seventh thing I want you to get from this. The servant presented the exact truth of the matter and expected a clear decision from his hearers. And we need to present exactly what God has said in his word without adding anything to it. And we need to make sure, for example, that when somebody comes to you and asks about how to get to heaven, you don't say, well, there's many ways to get to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And if a Muslim, you tell that to a Muslim and they don't like that and they shoot you, then better you die for the sake of gospel than not standing fast on God's word. You're not doing anybody any good by waffling in your convictions. This requires a clear decision for Jesus Christ and nothing else is gonna satisfy God. Okay, verse 67, last verse of the day. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and he took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. There is a time coming when we are going to be brought into the presence of the Lord. No doubt about it. And it's going to happen. As I said, it's going to be so sudden that any change in decision is going to be impossible. Rebecca responded immediately. And there was no uncertainty in her when she did. And this is what the Lord expects from us. When the decision is made, it is done. It is done forever. You can never lose your salvation. And just like Rebecca, it says he took her into his mother Sarah's tent God has provided a tent for us, an eternal one. Listen to what it says in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Tabernacle is a tent. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. The tent of God is with men and we're going to love him and he will love us for all eternity. And we are going to rejoice in the great king of the universe, the lamb of God, Jesus. But verse 67 has a second half. This is the last thing I'm going to read you today. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. The death of Isaac's mother is noted for two reasons. The first is that the bride is there to comfort the son during his loss. And the second is that there is loss. There is a bride for a husband and there is a husband for a bride, but there are those who are not going to be a part of this grand wedding. The Lord died for all people on earth and I am sure that he is going to be grieved in his heart at those who never come into his tent. These people, he's reached out to them. He's begged them over the centuries to come to him and they've rejected his word. And I tell you what, the only result is the pit which swallows men's souls. That's it. That's the only thing that's going to happen to us. So let me take just two minutes to explain how you can be a part of the former and escape the latter. Just in case this has never sunk in before. 
Jesus Christ came and he died for every single human on the face of the earth. I believe in unlimited atonement. That means he died for everybody. And then by doing that, he offers his own torture that he went through as a substitute for what we deserve. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. We deserve death and we deserve all of the punishment that Jesus Christ took. And God put it on his son and then he says, if you will accept what I have done in him, then I will account it to you and I won't give you what you deserve. So the choice is if you reject what he has done in his own son, that he is going to exercise that in you. And that is the lake of fire. So those are the only two choices for all human beings, either accept the work of Jesus Christ or to be condemned to hell. I'm not a big person talking about hell, but I cannot deny the reality of it. So please, if in your heart you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I would ask that you would do so today. All right? Anyway, um, I got a closing verse for you today, which is Revelation 22, verse 17. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. All right. Next week, I'm going to do, we're not going to do Genesis 25. I'm going to take a week off from from, uh, the book of Genesis, and we're going to have a Christmas sermon. It's going to be Isaiah 7.14. Can anybody here quote Isaiah 7.14? The virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. That's not the whole verse, but anyway, that's the verse that I'm going to be preaching on, and it's called the Christmas story. Okay, so we're going to speak about Jesus and what he did and why he came and how it pertains to Christmas. All right. Um, And next week, just so you know, if there is um, still any trees left, we're going to sit over there instead of here because it is hugely hot right now and I'm, I'm actually baking and I haven't been able to get my thoughts out at all today and I apologize for that I you know I should have known this I got here early so that I got here at nine o'clock hoping that we'd be able to get everything set up and ready and there were people all over and I didn't know what tables we'd have but uh, anyway I, I apologize for my delivery today it has been a very hard day to speak and I just hope we can find another place to meet maybe out by the parking lot under the trees there but uh, it will be a fun sermon, I think. Um, it's called The Christmas Story, and it's Isaiah 7:14. And, of course, I have one last thing for you today, which is the poem that I do every week. And it's based on the verses that we looked at today, and it's called The Bride and the Bridegroom. The servant brought out jewelry for Rebecca, silver, gold, and clothing to adorn her beauty. He also gave thanks to her brother and mother. The servant fully accomplished his assigned duty. And he and the men who were with him ate, and they drank, and they stayed all night. Then they arose in the morning. The dawn was just great. And he said, send me away to my master, all right? But her brother and her mother said, let the young woman stay with us a few days. At least 10 and then she may go ahead. Let us upon her tender beauty for a while gaze. And he said, don't hinder me, please, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me off to my master, give me release. It is not right that I dally the time away. So they said, we will call the young woman to ask her about this personally. Then they called Rebecca before the man and, he, and asked if she would go along willingly. And she said, I will go. It is the right thing. This I know. So they sent away Rebecca along with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men went too. And they gave her a blessing, not a curse, a blessing fulfilled in me and in you. May you become thousands and ten thousands, our sister, and may your descendants possess their enemy's gate. And she arose and followed the servant, Mr., who took Rebekah and departed on this journey so great. Now Isaac came from the way of Beer Lahai Roi, for he dwelt at that time in the south. He went out to meditate in the field at evening, you see, praying to the Lord with his heart in his mouth. 
And he lifted his eyes, and lo, he looked. And there he saw, yes, camels were coming. Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and her heart was cooked. She saw Isaac and jumped from the camel. Her legs were numbing. For she had said, who is this man walking in the field, coming to meet us? To him shall my heart yield? The servant said, it is my master that you see. So she took a veil and covered herself in modesty. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. He took Rebekah and they were united as one. He loved her and was comforted after his mother's heavenly ascent. What a glorious picture of Christ and his bride, the church that will ever be at his side. What a wonderful story of hope and of love and the greatness of our God in the heavens above. Holy, splendid, and awesome Lord, how wonderful it will be to finally meet. Until then, we have a gift, your precious word, and its pages are like the honey, so sweet. Thank you for the love of our Lord Jesus, who has done all of these wonderful things for us. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to speak on, on uh, Rebecca and what it means to us and Isaac and who he pictures in you. And I thank you for each person that's been here and heard these sermons, and I hope that they'll go away with a greater appreciation of what you really are doing in human history for each one of us. And what a glorious word you've given us, how precious it is. Please be with each person here. Take care of them in the week ahead. Bless them in their souls and just meet every need so that they can turn around and praise you. And yes, Lord, you know that some things are coming up in the week ahead in some of these individuals which are frightening or which are difficult. And I would ask that you would be with them and help them during those trials and uh, uh, just help each one of us to keep each other in prayer and to just bring you the glory that you're due. We love you. We praise you. All glory, all majesty, all honor, all exaltation in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.